I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We give thanks to God the Father that our Savior, Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. Therefore, we proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, what grace, what love, what mercy you have lavished upon us. We are so grateful that we have a confident place to stand. Not of any of our own doing or our own merit, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that you have imparted to us because of his obedience in our place and his death in our place and his resurrection in our place so that we would become the recipients not of judgment, not of punishment, but of life everlasting. We praise you that this is how you have loved us. God, we ask that you would give us the strength, the clarity, the heart to live in the light of this good news. May this gospel more and more come to characterize our thinking about who you are and about who we are. May this gospel come more and more to characterize our speech, that we would be those who offer words of grace. Words of kindness, words of mercy, words of hope. We pray that this gospel would come more and more to characterize the way that we relate to one another within this church family, recognizing that not a one of us is without sin. None of us has earned our way into this family, into your fellowship we all stand on the exact same ground, the ground of grace poured out on us through Christ. May we love one another in light of that. May we extend forgiveness and mercy to one another. May we become a people saturated with the knowledge and awareness of your forgiveness and mercy to us in Christ and thereby quick to extend mercy to one another, thus living out the gospel that we believe, the gospel that saves, 
Father, we thank you that we are not the only church in our area who is seeking to make disciples and proclaim Christ, and it's our joy to come alongside other churches in, in prayer and support for your work there. And this morning, I want to pray particularly for Highland Terrace Baptist Church. Lord, we thank you for that fellowship, your grace to them. We know they've been through a lot. We thank you for your provision of uh, renewed uh, facilities after uh, their destruction some years ago. We thank you for your grace in the life of their former pastor, Chet Haney, and the way that he seems to be uh, recovering so well from illness and uh, the joy of remission and just the gratitude and praise for your healing power and your mercy to him and his family. We praise you for him and for his long ministry there. We pray for Lanny Bridges, who's serving there as the interim senior pastor. We pray that you'd give him wisdom and clarity to lead that congregation well, to preach your word with clarity and conviction. We pray that your spirit would be very active and present and obvious in that fellowship. Lord, strengthen them and equip them for the gospel ministries to which you've appointed them in Greenville and beyond. Strengthen that church, we pray. Lord, we pray for Derek and his family and for uh, your continued help and support of their family and their ministry. Their daughter, who's had so many health concerns, is about to turn nine, and I know they're reflecting upon uh, her life and your faithfulness, and there's questions about the future and further medical uh, procedures that may need to be done. We pray that in the midst of all of that, you would be very present among them. Give them hope, give them strength, give them your grace. We thank you for her health and stability, and we pray that you continue to work, Lord, to build her and strengthen her body so that uh, she can uh, grow and follow you in faithfulness in the ways you have in store for her. And we pray that her heart would continue to trust in you and that their family would continue to lean on you for mercy and grace and strength. Lord, Derek and a teammate have been going into town on Tuesday nights to share the gospel. We pray that you give great success to those efforts. They've connected recently with a group of Arab men, and they're, they're praying for, and we're praying along with them for uh, good relationships to form there, for friendships to form, and that there might be gospel fruit that is born in the midst of those relationships and those conversations. Lord, strengthen them. Give the, give the light of your spirit to every word of gospel truth that they say, that there might be blinded eyes opened and hardened hearts softened by your spirit at work through the word of the gospel. And we pray for them as they're planning for summer ministries and uh, coordinating with students from the United States to come over and, and uh, serve. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you be with all of those plans as they're forming. We pray that you would call the students that you intend to spend that time and make that investment. And we pray, Lord, that all those things would come together in such a way that the gospel would go forward, that their ministry would be strengthened, that your church would be built and your kingdom advanced in the power of Christ. We pray for ourselves now as we turn to your word. Would you grant us humility? Would you grant us a willingness to submit our lives to your authority as you rule over us by your word? May you grant us clarity of mind and softness of heart to understand what you tell us and to respond with faith and obedience. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.
we don't really like to talk about money. Let's be honest, it makes us a little uncomfortable. If you have kids, you've probably had conversations with them about what to say or not to say or how not to react when they enter somebody else's house. No oohs and ahs, no strange contorted faces of disgust. Wow, you must be rich or wow, you must be poor. We don't say those things, right? Why don't we talk about that? I don't know, you just don't, right? Money is very personal, it's very private. We work, we earn, it's mine. It's my money, I use it how I want. It's not, you don't have a, a place in this conversation. That's kind of how we regard it, right? And if you bring it up, there's, everybody's a little bit on edge. Oh gosh, what's, what is, what's he gonna say? What's he gonna ask, right? So we're all a little bit sensitive when it comes to the topic of money and, and possessions and wealth and what to do with that. And when you add to that just general sense of sort of unease about it, the, the, the ways that there's been abuses of money and teaching on money, even within the church, perhaps you've been flipping through the channels and you've come across some televangelist standing on a gold-plated platform behind a gold-plated podium wearing gold-plated jewelry and saying, if you'll just give your seed money and just believe that God will do miraculous things, just send your money to our ministry, of course, it's always their ministry they want you to send it to, then God will give you all of the wealth and prosperity and health and happiness that you've ever dreamed of. And so lots of times people have imbibed these messages about money and they've associated that with the church or even with Christianity in general. So we're uncomfortable about money at all talking about it and we're really not welcoming the voice of pastors and teachers and, and preachers in the church into conversations about money. So people are naturally distrustful about money when it comes to the church and preachers talking about money is like off limits. We don't want to go there. Because of that distrust understandably, most pastors are pretty uncomfortable talking about it to their people. So there, it becomes very uh, hard to even bring it up. So even if a preacher feels the need to provide some context or some teaching or some exhortation to people about how they use their money, there's a trepidation. There's a hesitancy there. I don't know if I want to poke that bear. Now when you couple, when you combine the distrust that people naturally have about talking about money and how the church has handled it with pastors and preachers' general kind of fear and discomfort addressing it, what you have is a perfect recipe for followers of Jesus to go totally undiscipled in an area that's really, really important, in an area that indeed Jesus speaks more about in the Gospels than Heaven and hell combined. It matters how we relate to money, how we think about money, how we spend, how we gain money, how we spend money. All of these things are important as followers of Jesus Christ as it relates to our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. In fact, the only thing that Jesus talked more about than money is the kingdom of God which is not a coincidence because they're closely related, as we'll see. So to be faithful disciples of Jesus, we can't ignore an issue that he so frequently and sometimes provocatively addressed. 
Indeed, our relationship to money may be one of the most important spiritual barometers in our lives. In other words, I'm suggesting your attitude toward money and possessions and the presence or absence of generosity in your life is one of the clearest indicators of how serious you are about following Jesus at all. That sounds like a bold statement, but I think it's exactly what Jesus himself says in the verses we'll consider today. In your Bibles, turn please to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34. Over the next four Sundays, we will walk through this passage and explore together how Jesus desires for his disciples to relate to money and material possessions and how our wallets relate to our hearts and to God's kingdom. Now this paragraph in Matthew 6 comes in the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, essentially a message about kingdom ethics, life in the kingdom of God, the way of the kingdom. Those whose hearts belong to Jesus Christ live upside-down lives in the world, or more accurately, we live right-side-up lives in an upside-down world. That's really the, the way that it is. Because we're citizens of a different kingdom, a kingdom that's not of this world, namely the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus addresses money in this sermon, he's aiming at cultivating a kingdom-first mindset among his people, a kingdom-centric ethic for life in the world. The overarching principle that we'll uh, unpack in these verses over the next four Sundays is the principle of stewardship. A steward is one who manages property and wealth on someone else's behalf. So I've titled this series, Entrusted, by which I mean to convey a simple biblical reality. You don't own anything. We don't own anything. To be a steward is to manage somebody else's possessions. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, living on planet Earth, we have been entrusted with God's resources to handle them, to manage them on his behalf, which means that we need to manage those resources in a way that is consistent with his plans and purposes and his desires. Psalm 24.1 says very plainly, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything that exists is God's. Everything that you have is God's. Everything in your bank account, everything in your home, everything under your name belongs not to you, but to him. When I was in third grade, I, my brother and I found this video game that we were really excited about for a long time, and it finally came out, and we, we pulled together birthday money, and we bought this game called Simon's Quest. Simon's Quest was a Nintendo game, just Nintendo. Does anybody even remember just when there was not Super Nintendo, Extra Nintendo, Nintendo 64,000, just Nintendo, right? 
It was a Nintendo game. And so we were really excited about this game. We played it night and day. I don't know why my parents let us play it night and day, but we did. We spent a lot of time playing this game. All I really remember about it at this point is that you're this little guy with a whip, and you're running around, and like a zombie would come at you, and you have to whap him with a whip. That's about all I remember. But I remember we were really excited about this game, and we thought it was the best thing ever. And a friend of mine in the third grade named Sean said, oh man, I really want to play that game. I've heard so much about it. Could you come over this weekend and let's play it together? And so we arranged a sleepover. And I, on a Friday, I went to his house with Simon's Quest. And we spent probably most of the night playing Simon's Quest. And when I was going to leave the next day, he said, hey, could I borrow it? Now that, that stings a little. This is new. This is a fresh toy, right? But I wanted to be a good friend. So I said, okay, you can borrow it. Just bring it back on Monday. Okay, I promise I will. Well, Monday rolls around, and I go to school. Sean's not there. Ah, that's a bummer. I'll have to wait another day to get it back. Maybe he's sick. Then I go back to school on Tuesday. Sean's still not there. By the third day, I'm getting a little concerned. So I actually went to my teacher on Wednesday, and I said, hey, where's Sean? And she said, he moved. I entrusted him with my game, and he moved away with it. I was shocked. I was flabbergasted. I was stunned. And to this day, I have trust issues because of it. No, probably. I'm just kidding. Not really. But I remember that. I remember the feeling of something that was mine, something that was precious to me, something I entrusted to this friend, and I expected him to treat it well, and he left with it. He moved away with it. I never saw Sean again. I've never seen Simon's Quest again, never played another frame of Simon's Quest as far as I can remember. So the question of stewardship is essentially how do we avoid taking what God has entrusted to us and moving away with it? Thanks for all the stuff you've given me, God. I'm going to go over here. And you're never going to see me again. You're never going to see it again. I'm going to use it however I choose. How do we avoid moving away with what God has entrusted to us? We're going to read today... Just verses 19 through 21 of Matthew 6. And we'll find here three reasons not to stockpile stuff on earth. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Three reasons Jesus gives us not to stockpile stuff on earth. Number one, earthly treasure doesn't last. Earthly treasure doesn't last. Jesus immediately cuts against every instinct that we have regarding stuff, which is pile it up, get more. And once you've got it, keep it, hold on to it, secure it, keep it safe, right? That's our instinct. We want as much as we can get, and then we want to hoard it into a corner where you can't touch it. No touchy. This is mine. No, says Jesus, don't store up for yourselves Treasures on earth. Why not? Simply because it won't last. There's two particular threats that Jesus alert, uh, um, alerts us to here related to our stuff. Number one, moth and rust. 
Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And this just has to do with the natural end of all things. Everything you have, everything under your roof, everything you're wearing right now, anything you ever drive will become dust and ashes at some point. Moth and rust destroy. Rex used to watch this series called Mighty Machines. Anybody, any parents in here or kids familiar with Mighty Machines? So there was this episode of Mighty Machines that he watched over and over that took place in a junkyard. And it was these heavy-duty machines basically moving piles of rusty old cars into these compacting machines that kind of flattened them into pancakes and then moved them somewhere else, right, and hauled them away. And I remember I would watch this episode uh, with him or just walk through the room and see a few seconds of it over and over. And I remember thinking to myself, every one of these hunks of rusty metal and plastic used to be somebody's brand new pride and joy. This is my new car. This is my new toy. Can you believe that I have this amazing thing? Fast forward a few years and it's in a junkyard getting mangled up for the entertainment of three-year-olds. That's what happens to our stuff. Moth and rust destroy. Every shiny new car ends up as a rusty scrap in a junkyard somewhere. Every luxurious mansion eventually becomes a pile of rubble in a field. Every material possession we stock up or, temp or temporal endeavor we pursue will one day come to nothing. Jesus is alerting us to this. It's just a simple reality of life. Everything you have will one day be dust and ashes. The second threat he alerts us to is thieves. Where thieves break in and steal. We live in a fallen world. We live as sinners among sinners. And people want to take your stuff from you. I don't know if you've realized that. Maybe you've been a victim of identity theft or somebody's broken in to your home and taken things that belonged to you. Or some other way. Maybe somebody was a bully and stole your lunch money. That's the classic example in childhood. People want to take your stuff. Even what you think is safe and secure is no sure bet. You can stockpile all you want. You can put as many barriers and security measures in place as you can imagine, and it will not be safe. Checking, savings, insurance, bonds, investment, security systems, it doesn't matter. There's somebody somewhere who knows how to get through all that stuff. So some stuff naturally wears out. That's just the course of its existence. And other stuff gets forcibly removed from our possession. We think it's safe until suddenly it's gone. Not so safe anymore. So if you want a good return on your investment, it simply makes no sense to primarily invest in earthly possessions and pursuits. Because you can't take them with you into the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 6, 7, Paul reminds us we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. It's obvious, it's simple, but sometimes we live like it's not true or like we've forgotten that. Or as John Piper said in his book, Desiring God, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. 
Nobody's taking their stuff with them into eternity. Brothers and sisters, look at your life and ask yourself, where am I most likely to invest time, money, and talent in things that don't have eternal value? What has a particular appeal for me where I'm prone to overspend or overinvest? In what ways might I be banking on a return and investment that's fleeting, temporal, frivolous? Rich Mullins, in one of his songs, says, The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. And that is a battle we regularly face as sinners. Our hearts are so prone toward other allegiances, and sometimes it's something as silly as stuff. Whatever it takes to get more stuff becomes the idol that we worship. Where is that competition in your heart? What is it that you feel pulling you away from the things of eternity and toward these earthly, frivolous sorts of pursuits? Now, Jesus is not condemning ownership entirely. He's not saying it's wrong for us to secure uh, the sort of basic necessities of, of life and taking care of ourselves and our loved ones, as long as we recognize it as really borrowship, because it's God's, right? We, we don't own anything. So it's not wrong to see to our needs and the needs of our loved ones. The, the trouble is we keep expanding the list of what we need and what counts as the basics. You know, well, I got to have internet. I got to have a smartphone to live in this society. Got to have, a, you know, an entertainment package, cable, a streaming TV system, a vacation house, whatever, just to, to unwind, to, to care for myself, right? There's, the list could keep growing, and we can justify all manner of stuff. No, that's just, that's a need. That's just basics. So it's worth asking ourselves, is that really what we think? Is that we're really just taking care of our basics, or have we gone overboard in acquiring earthly stuff? So the first reason not to stockpile stuff on earth is simply this. Earthly treasure doesn't last. It won't last. The second reason that he gives us in verse 20 is that earthly giving stores up heavenly treasure. Earthly giving stores up heavenly treasure. If you imagine sort of a, a heavenly bank account, as it were, investments that we make Ways that we serve, that we give, that we love, that we sacrifice here on earth actually pay dividends in that future heavenly bank account, so to speak. And the treasures in that bank account are totally secure. No moth, no rust, no thieves. It says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So the threats that our earthly stuff are prone to do not apply to treasures that we've stored up in heaven. Our heavenly possessions are not prone to decay. They are not open to vandal and theft. The rules that guarantee 
the eventual loss and destruction of everything we own do not apply to heaven because God's kingdom is not of this world. It's eternal. What we invest for now, what we invest in now for the kingdom will yield a good return for eternity. In 1 Peter 1, 4, the apostle celebrates the gospel of Christ and he says that he, he has purchased for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The inheritance that we have coming cannot be touched by any enemy, and it will not naturally disintegrate. It's unfading, it's undefiled, it's imperishable. And that inheritance, it seems, is actually sort of expanded by our generosity and the investments we make in the kingdom of God while we live here on earth. So the message is not your earthly life doesn't matter. The message is spend your earthly life for the sake of the kingdom because it will yield an eternal reward, an eternal return on investment. And so Jesus actually motivates our kingdom-centric living with the promise of reward. And I think sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we have this idea that it's unholy or it's selfish to be motivated by reward. We should just serve God and the kingdom just for the sake of doing good. What is the reward? I need no reward except knowing that I've done good. Jesus doesn't hesitate. If you do good here, if you invest well here, you will have a greater reward in heaven. That's a pretty clear motive that Jesus is using, and actually the Bible is pretty consistent in that kind of, uh, of motivation. So, Jesus promises us heavenly, eternal reward if we will invest our lives well, not by stockpiling earthly stuff, but by giving and serving and sacrificing in a way that builds up that heavenly bank account. So the principle here is that kingdom-first giving stores up heavenly treasures. And there's other verses from, uh, in the Gospels and elsewhere that make this same kind of case. In Luke 16, 9, Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. And he doesn't mean by wealth that you've gained in an unrighteous way. He just means earthly material possession. Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, use your earthly possessions for the good of others, and it will pay dividends in eternity. That's what he means by that. In Luke 6, 38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So if you're a stingy giver now, then your reward on the other side might be stingy in return. And vice versa. The more we give here, the more sacrificially we live, the more we invest in the kingdom of God, the greater our eternal benefits, the greater our reward. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, I'm going to turn to that verse. 1 Timothy 6. 17, Paul says this, 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that is, proud and looking down on others, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And then he goes on, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is real life? What is truly life? It's not living it up while you're here and having as much as you possibly can. It's living in such a way that that heavenly return is growing. It's living in such a way that the kingdom of God is front and center in your mind and your desires and your motives and your words and your giving and your time. If you're rich, he says, use that to be generous and ready to share with others. Use it for the good of other people, not only for your own comfort and ease. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Why are, the, why are riches uncertain? Well, remember, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. You don't know that what you have right now, you'll have tomorrow. You don't know. It's uncertain. So if that's what you're hoping in, that's a flimsy hope. That is not a sturdy place to stand, but rather hope in God. Put your hope on him. And of course, he's talking about more than just money, right? We haven't necessarily said this explicitly yet, but all of this is more than just what we do with dollars and cents. It's all of the resources that God has given us. It's money for sure, but it's time. It's health. It's relationships, it's talents, it's every aspect of what we have, what is available to us to steward, and he's calling us to use all of those resources in such a way that the kingdom of God is first, that the kingdom of God is obvious, that we live according to his principles. And when you trust God in this way, I don't trust in riches. I think they can be taken away tomorrow. I trust in God. When you're trusting in God, then you are free to give your stuff away for the good of others. If what's most important to you is stockpiling stuff on earth, and that's what you're trusting in, you're not going to be a very giving person. You're not going to be ready to give or do good for others. You're going to be very careful and very guarded. This is mine. No, it's not. It's the Lord's. Your kingdom-first gifts and investments will travel with you into eternity. That's what Jesus is saying here. No, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses, but when you invest in the kingdom, the treasures you store up go on ahead of you and are kept for you there. When you buy lunch for a homeless man and have a conversation with him, when you continue faithfully supporting that missionary in South America, even when the victories that she reports are few and kind of small. When you drop that check in the offering plate or set up a recurring donation online, even though you know it means you might have to cancel Disney Plus for a while. When you get up a little earlier or go to bed a little bit later so that you can prayer walk with a friend or attend a Bible study or serve at a food drive. Investments like this have an impact on lives and souls 
that may or may not make themselves plain to us until heaven. You might have no idea how those gifts, how those acts of service and kindness and blessing are storing up for you. We just take Jesus at his word. When he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, moth and rust won't destroy them, thieves won't steal them. Your kingdom investments here go on ahead of you into eternity. That's the way that it works. Earthly giving stores up heavenly treasures. Now, flowing from this reality, right, since earthly stuff doesn't last and our earthly giving stores up heavenly reward, Jesus gives us the third and final principle of these verses. Your heart follows your treasure. Your heart follows your treasure. Verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think this reflects two truths. There's, there's two angles from which to view this principle. The first one is this. Where I'm currently investing my money and time and energy and everything else reveals what is most important to me. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Means, in the first place, where I'm currently investing reveals what's most important to me. If the monthly bill for my entertainment package is more than my regular contributions to the church, that says something about what I value. If I spend more time scrolling Facebook, watching the news, or playing games on my phone, then I spend listening to a friend in need or serving a neighbor. That says something about what I value. If I spend all my waking hours at the office finishing up that project, and routinely miss out on experiences and teachable moments with my children, that says something about what I value. So our investment patterns reveal our value system beyond just what we say. But also, and perhaps even more importantly than that, just the fact that where we spend reveals what we value, if I want to develop kingdom priorities, I need to invest in kingdom pursuits. Another way to say this, if you intentionally invest in kingdom pursuits, you will actually lead your heart to love the kingdom more. I think that's what Jesus is driving at here. God has written this into our hearts. If we stockpile stuff on earth, we'll start to think this is what matters most. This is what life is all about. This is what's really important. Look at all the effort I've put here. Look at all the things I've gained. Look at what I've achieved. You can't tell me I need to let that go. Man, if you stockpile stuff here, that starts to look like what life is all about. So, to intentionally counteract that is to start investing intentionally in the kingdom. To start intentionally living in a way that emphasizes Christ and his word and his ways and serving others rather than stockpiling your own resources and building your own kingdom. When we spend our money, spend our time, use our words, our influence for a kingdom that is not of this world, then we will come to love that kingdom more because our hearts will follow our treasures. 
So where your treasure is, there your heart will be also tells us both where I'm currently investing reveals what's most important to me, but it also gives us a strategy. If I want to value the kingdom more, if I want to live more for God's glory and less for my own comfort, then I need to start intentionally working against that by investing in the kingdom, by spending for his sake, by giving for his glory, by serving and sacrificing for others rather than myself. think Jesus gives us a bit of a blueprint for growing as kingdom first disciples. Start pouring your money, your time, and your resources into kingdom work and watch your interest in and passion for God's kingdom grow and deepen. It takes a conscious choice, probably a series of them day by day. But Jesus isn't interested in your money. He doesn't need it. He already owns it all, remember? What he wants is your heart. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is really this. Where is my heart? Is it his? Is my heart invested in the kingdom of God? Or is it fogged over and distracted by earthly temporal pursuits? If you want to see your love for Jesus grow, your desire for his kingdom to increase, and your energy in serving him and loving others expand, then start redirecting your money and time toward kingdom investments. Build a new relationship with an unbeliever in your workplace. Give a little more to the church each month. Take a next step toward discipleship and accountability with a brother or sister in Christ. Cancel your entertainment package and spend the savings on helping that single mom neighbor who always seems to struggle with her rent. There are all manner of ways to redirect our resources from earthly temporal things into kingdom pursuits. And the more we do that, the more we actually strike against that competition And that idolatry that can so easily come into our hearts. It says, this stuff that I've piled up is the most important thing. What my life looks like here on this earth is the most important thing. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Listen, there's nothing you can invest in kingdom work in this life that won't return to you in joy and blessing in the next Jesus assures us of this. And it's all his anyway. You don't own anything. Your house, your car, your paycheck, your family, your time, your very heartbeat. It's all his. And Jesus isn't demanding anything of us. He hasn't already done himself. In fact, he is the very best example of someone who gave up everything for the sake of an eternal dividend. Hebrews 12, 2 exhorts us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He invested everything that he had in a kingdom purpose, 
namely rescuing broken rebels and sinners like us and inviting us into his family so that we could share in his eternal kingdom with him where he is seated at the right hand of God, where he is reigning now. He gave up his glory in heaven and his life on earth to gather us to his side, to share with him in his rule and reign in the new heaven and new earth. That is how Jesus lived. That is the model that he gave, and that's how he exhorts us. Look not to earthly joy and pleasure, but to a heavenly joy that will far surpass anything you will experience here and live your life now, spending yourself and all of your resources in light of that day. Friends, it is because Jesus endured the penalty for our sins on the cross that we can look at mountains of treasures on earth and count them as dust and ashes. It is because he suffered for us and rose again from the grave that we can know the joy and hope of eternal life in his forever kingdom. And that confidence, the confidence that that kingdom is ours and that that's the kingdom we belong to, infuses our time, our money, and our very lives with purpose and significance, and it leads us gladly on the road of sacrifice which is not the way of the world, but it is the way of Jesus. It is the way of the cross. It is the way of the kingdom. I'll close with this quote from Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle. God wants your heart. He isn't looking just for donors for his kingdom, those who stand outside the cause and dispassionately consider acts of philanthropy. He's looking for disciples immersed in the causes they give to he wants people so filled with a vision for eternity that they wouldn't dream of not investing their money, time, and prayers where they will matter most. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for exhortations like this one in your word that remind us of what is most important, that remind us of where our lives really should be spent. We confess our own weakness in these areas, our own fears, our own concerns over what we have and how we address it and how other people talk to us about it. But Lord, we want to be those who recognize everything we have is from your hand and we are simply entrusted to steward it on your behalf. So Lord, would you grant us this kind of perspective? Would you give us the faith to believe that the way that we relate to material possessions here and the way that we give them and sacrifice for the sake of your glory and the good of others invests in a future reward and glory that will far surpass anything we'll find here. Lord, make us willing to live like Jesus lived to be empowered by your spirit alive and at work in us to give up our own pleasures and comforts for the sake of others and ultimately for the glory of Christ and the building of his kingdom. If there's anyone in this room in the sound of my voice that has not given themselves to you, that has not rested 
their lives and their eternity on the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we pray that you would draw their hearts even now. Call them to, your sake, to yourself, Lord. Give new life, eternal hope. Father, use us for your glory. May we spend our lives not for our good and glory, but for yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.